Good morning. Well, if you would have told me that a year ago that uh, I'd be up here preaching a week after a pastor from John MacArthur's church, and a week before another master seminary grad, well, I simply would not have believed you. The reason I would not believe you is I'd never agree to something like that. And yet I'm here. <laughs> so, all kidding aside, I'm really excited about the things that are happening here. I'm excited about uh, everything our steering committee has done in uh, just arranging everything that, that is happening. Um, I've had the opportunity of listening to some of uh, Mike Hovland's sermons online. He's coming out next weekend. And I've been really blessed by them. And I think you will feel the same. I want to direct our attention this morning to a kind of passed over letter in the Bible, at least passed over by me. I'd only read it a handful of times before preparing to preach on it, but was really blessed by it, and I trust you will be too. It is in the form of a heartfelt plea by the Apostle Paul to a brother and fellow worker in the faith and his household in the area surrounding Colossae. In fact, there's good evidence that the same men who set off to Colossae with Paul's letter to the Colossians were in possession and delivering this letter also. The appeal is written on behalf of a useless slave named Useful. That's right. A useless slave named Useful who has indeed become useful. I'm talking about the small book of Philemon. To help you find it, it's between the book of Titus and the book of Hebrews. If you want to turn there with me. So right before the book of Hebrews. I do need to provide a bit of a disclaimer before we start. I know I've skipped over a lot of important points in the book. I'm not quite satisfied with that reality, but I definitely bit off more than I could chew in... Uh, <laughs> doing a whole book in a message. I know it's only one chapter, but uh, uh, by the time I realized it, I didn't have time to go back and change it. Um, I hope you can overlook that, and I trust the Lord will still use it to edify his people. It'll be more of a observations from the book of Philemon. That is the title of my message. But I want, you to take, I want to take you through this letter, and as we read through it, I want you to be able to catch the main theme of Paul's appeal. If I were to sum up this letter in one sentence, I would call it the transforming work of the gospel and our response in relationships, and I think we could add in society. We will see, first of all, that Jesus Christ redeems the weak and the unredeemable. John MacArthur writes, In advancing his kingdom, the Lord uses weak and sinful people. No other kind exists. I hope to provide some examples around that truth, as well as to see how that affects how we ought to live. In other words, what can we learn from Paul's appeal and in his expectations of Philemon? Before we go there, let's pray. God, we thank you for this church. We thank you for this body. And um, we thank you for what you're doing for us through Grace Advance. And uh, I pray that you would have your hand in that, and that by your grace that we would be supplied with a pastor that we could go forward from there. God, I pray for this message this morning. I pray that it would give grace to the hearers and that you would be merciful to me as I present it. Amen. So let's just read the whole letter and then I'll take it from there. 
Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing even, owing me even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. So first of all, we notice that in Paul's greeting that he is writing this letter from imprisonment. It is approximately the year 62 AD. Paul, now an old man, has been a few years earlier arrested in the temple in Jerusalem under false allegations and then transported to Caesarea by the Roman commander in Jerusalem in an effort to protect him from the murderous plots of ambush by the Jews. From Caesarea, he eventually makes an appeal to Caesar and is subsequently placed on a ship bound for Rome. By the Lord's providence and purpose, though he endures many things on the way to Rome, even shipwreck, he arrives in Rome. The first thing he does when he arrives in Rome is he proclaims the gospel before Jewish leaders in Rome and tries to reason with them from the scriptures of of Jesus Christ. They depart after he quotes to them the prophecy that we had written, uh, sorry, that we had read to us last Sunday uh, by Brother Pete. And we pick up the story in Acts 28, where we read, And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's hearts heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and with and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, 
and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. As soon as the meeting ends, Paul then turns his attention towards the Gentiles in the area. We see at the end of the chapter in Acts that Paul is given a certain measure of freedom to take visitors and is given pretty much full autonomy to preach and teach all all who come to him. It is somewhere during this time that he that he comes becomes acquainted with the man who is the subject of our letter, Onesimus. Who is Onesimus? Well, we can see from the letter that Onesimus is a slave who belongs to Philemon's household. He has disgraced his master, having broken his trust and stolen from him, and has fled to the large metropolis of Rome, I would assume in an effort to lose himself in the crowd and start a new life. In doing so, he would be seeking to avoid retribution and severe punishment for his disobedience to his master. Before we get too far into our, to our story, I need to touch on this issue of slavery. You might be thinking, well, isn't it a good thing that Onesimus, Onesimus gained his freedom? This is, after all, slavery we're talking about. Philemon had no right to even own a slave as a Christian. Although I don't have much time to go into the nuances of the American slave trade, and I, I, I've never really studied into it all that much, we do know it involved the kidnapping and selling of people into bondage. And that was racially, oh, and that it was racially motivated. Something the Old and New Testament utterly prohibited. Although we may debate the ethics of how slavery came to prominence in Paul's day, And though I don't think it was necessarily right or just, the reality was that slavery was a big part of the social economic structure of the first century Roman Empire. And there was a sense of protection in being a slave in the context of first century Rome. In fact, depending on who your master was, there was a sense of pride in being the slave of an important man. And there was a level of respect for the slave of a well-known master. Slaves had a variety of positions, from field workers to doctors. And they would have been hard to spot in a crowd because they would dress like everyone else um, and were they were active in society. They, you could have lawyers, doctors, um, all these different things that they were involved in. They would also be an integral part of the family they belonged to. John MacArthur writes, Slavery was a pervasive social structure in the first century Roman Empire. In fact, it was so commonplace that its existence as an institution was never seriously questioned by anyone. Slaves of all ages, genders, ethnicities constituted an important socio-economic class in ancient Rome. Roughly one-fifth of the empire's population were slaves, totaling as many as 12 million at the outset of the first century A.D., Not surprisingly, the entire Roman economy was highly dependent on this sizable pool of both skilled and unskilled labor. MacArthur leaves a footnote where he quotes Dale B. Martin from his book, where he says, The institution of slavery itself was never really questioned. Slaves may have resented their bondage, but given the chance, they acquired slaves themselves. When freed, they simply moved up a notch in the system becoming themselves masters and mistresses, and pulling their dependents along with them. Almost no one, slaves included, thought to organize society any other way. 
On the development of slavery, John MacArthur further writes, Initially, the Roman slave population came through military conquests. As the empire expands its borders, it captures huge numbers of people who were subsequently sold into bondage. But by the first century, the majority of slaves inherited their place in society by being born into slavery. Most slaves then had never known freedom. I think it's safe to assume that Onesimus was probably born into slavery. The name Onesimus means useful. It literally means useful. It would have been a common name for a slave for obvious reasons. With that brief overview of the book, I want us to look at the first 13 verses of the letter to start. Um, But mainly our focus will be on on the conversion of, of Onesimus. My first observation is titled, Transformed in Christ. So we read, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of the love and the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve you on my behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. The useless slave. Paul calls Onesimus formerly useless, unprofitable, There's no better word to describe it. It is the exact opposite of his name. The Onesimus who arrived where Paul was being held was the lowest of low in society. By his actions, he had become a disgrace, a detriment to his master, and ultimately a vagabond without a home. You can imagine him wandering about the city of Rome, no place to go, without a place in society. No doubt he thought the gain of his personal freedom would be worth all the trouble. And he would be at peace. When we put it that way, the view quickly changes from his physical title of slave to his spiritual bondage, doesn't it? When we think of this phrase, formerly he was useless, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. We are reminded in a lot of ways of our own former state as slaves. I immediately think of the bondage of a life in sin. Paul may be referencing Onesimus' state as an unprofitable slave, but in referencing his newfound usefulness, Paul is referring to a usefulness in the ministry of the gospel, a spiritual transformation into an obedient slave to the Lord Jesus Christ. We see the language of, of slavery utilized all throughout Scripture due to the fact that everyone would have understood the implications of that kind of language. We may have gotten a bit of a positive picture of slavery, but the fact of the matter is, as a slave, you were not your own. The slave had one purpose in life. That was to do the will of his master. 
He had no rights to his own life. His sole reason for waking up in the morning and breathing air was to ensure that he did the will of the master who owned and or bought him. That is the picture that is painted of our old enslavement to sin. In the same sense, we are all, everyone in this room, born slaves. But not only that, we are willing slaves to our master. Of course, we naturally chafe at the idea of being enslaved and needing to be made free. Yet those are the very words of Jesus in describing our fallen state. So if you turn to John 8, just a couple of quick verses in there. So we pick up the conversation in verse 31. I'd rather read it from my Bible in case I misspelled something. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we will become free? You will become free. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain... Oh, sorry, that is about as far as I went there, but we can go to the end. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are our offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. By the end of the chapter, they are picking up stones to stone him. That is the message of the gospel. Christ died to set us free. Not only that, he died to purchase our freedom, making us his own slaves, zealous to do his will. And as we see in verse 10 of Philemon, Paul becomes the voice in Onesimus' life that eventually results in his conversion. He soon becomes a great help in Paul's imprisonment. In fact, Paul becomes so attached to him that in verse 12 he calls him his very heart. It pains Paul to part with a man that is so committed to service to Paul. And thus Paul says, but now he is indeed useful and to you and to me. Just a bit of a side note. You knew you were getting Kanye West in a, in a sermon soon anyway. I've been following the story of Kanye West a little bit. For those that don't know of him, he is a famous hip-hop artist and celebrity. Kanye is known for his temperament, his arrogance, and his explicit and profanity-filled music. The most unlikely candidate for salvation. He now claims to have been born again. It's been a fascinating story to follow. I don't cry very easily. <laughs> but I've more than once been brought to, to tears just seeing him on videos. Like, um, His whole temperament has changed. His, he's got a genuine smile. Um, on a popular t- TV show the other day, <clears throat> he mentioned his nighttime routine now. <laughs> In the evenings, I put my kids to bed. My wife watches Dateline. I just read my Bible. It's incredible. He has recently spoken out on his former porn addiction and has said he is done singing his old profanity-filled music. This is a man who has made millions, 
has lived the life that the world goes through life wishing they had. He had the cars, the wife, and the money. Yet he was hopelessly empty, addicted to pornography, completely enslaved to his sin, not seeing it. I've mentioned on Facebook, I've often mused of the idea of a celebrity like that becoming a Christian. How useful a guy like that could be for the gospel. We see the same mouth that once called himself God, now praising God. Putting Jesus in the center of this universe. Anyone that knows Kanye knows that, well, there's once this quote that, where somebody said, find someone who loves you like Kanye loves Kanye. Now he loves Christ, or by all accounts. We can debate the genuineness of his conversion, but if the indications are real, it's such a beautiful thing. This idea of, of a just a good-for-nothing person just living for himself, becoming such a useful tool in God's kingdom. Yet if you are here today and have been freed from bondage to sin, the miracle is just as amazing. Onesimus was a nobody, less than a nobody. And yet when he has been rescued by Jesus Christ, Paul ends up entrusting him. We read in Colossians, he ends up entrusting him, as well as a couple of other guys, to deliver some of the very scriptures that we read right now, 2,000 years later. Before we go into Paul's appeal, turn to Ephesians 2, verse 1, speaking of the Ephesians' former life life and sin. Ephesians 2, verse 1. Oh, there it is. We'll go to verse uh, verse 10. And you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raises us up with him. And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The beautiful truth in our text is that Christ in his death has purchased our freedom. And he takes out our sinful nature and literally creates in us a new freedom, or sorry, a new nature and a new creation in Christ. As is the case with Onesimus, when we hear the gospel and our nature is renewed, we begin to love God and we are willingly brought into subjection to our new master, Jesus Christ, as willing slaves, ready to do the will of our master who bought us. We become useful. Paul says to the believers at Corinth, you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. 
So what is the inevitable expected response from Philemon to Paul's appeal? First, it is to receive according to love. It says, I thank God, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I've derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. What does Paul mean? When it says in verse 8, accordingly, he is referring to everything he has said in the preceding verses. In this verse, Paul is saying, my plea is according to the love and the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus Christ and for all the saints. What does it mean to do something according to the love and faith we have toward Christ? Well, it begins in, in the recognition of that love and faith and the found, what the foundation is behind it. It begins in God. It starts in verse, verse 4 in Paul's simple but powerful words, I thank my God. I had never really thought about this phrase before it was pointed out to me by my brother. Um, I th we're thankful. Uh, thank we thank God for things. Um, I'm, I'm not an expert in Greek and would accept any correction here, but the way I understand it, if you look at the Greek word for thank, it is the word eucharistio. It originates from two root words, you, meaning simply good, and karizomai, butchering the word, sorry, which stems from the word karis. What does karis mean? It means grace. The very basic description of this word is good grace. Every time we thank God for something, we're essentially recognizing the gracious act of God in bringing about something. We recognize him in his provision for our meal when we pray before our meals. At the start of a new day, we thank God for our health. We thank God for the body of believers here. It is a conscious recognition that it is of God's grace that these things are in our lives. Here Paul recognizes, right in the beginning, God's undeserved favor that he has made to shine on Philemon's own life. He is so encouraged from his place in prison to see the results of his labor in the gospel being lived out so fully in Philemon's house. This faith and the love that is emanating, emanating from this household, their love for Christ and his people, is at its very foundation rooted in God and in the gospel of Jesus Christ. 1 John 4.9 says, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his own son, his only son, into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. It's such a simplistic command, but it is only understood properly when we grow in the knowledge of our own sinfulness versus God's great mercy and love for us. Because here's the contrast. According to the Roman law of the day, Paul doesn't have a leg to stand on in his appeal or in commanding anything from Philemon. According to law, Onesimus belongs to Philemon 
Philemon can do with him what he pleases. Onesimus' actions have brought Philemon much problems, even from the standpoint of society around them. Society would demand a swift response from Philemon. According to the law of the day, it was, it was ex- completely acceptable to severely punish a bad slave. Even if it resulted in the slave's ultimate death, you belong to your master. The master can do with you as he pleases. A runaway slave could cause any number of problems, including spark a major revolt among other discontented slaves. Paul calls Philemon to a different standard. In Colossians, Christian masters are told, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Remember Ephesians 2.12, where Paul also says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. This is the lens through which we need to live out our lives as saints. In dealing with family or unsaved co-workers, or especially in the setting of our church family, we are called to a different standard. Because of the fact that as we grow in our knowledge of God and in love and faith, again, we recognize it as a result of God's undeserved grace. And thus we live out our relationships in service to God and in thankfulness to God. It ought to completely change the way Philemon sees Onesimus. And in the same way, it ought to increase our love for one another and our grace toward one another. Secondly, we see, we see that Philemon is to receive Onesimus not only as a slave, but as a beloved brother. He says in verse 15, For this is perhaps why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. Notice how Paul doesn't call for the immediate freeing of Onesimus. In fact, in in a few of his other letters, he recognizes that the institution of slavery is still in effect. And as his goal isn't some kind of social reform, he counsels both slaves and masters in the area of how to treat one another. For instance, in Ephesians 6 verse 5, he says, Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven, knowing that he, typo, He is both their master and your master in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. First and foremost, Paul desires the restoration of the relationship as brothers unified in Christ. As Christ's slaves, the world's titles of master and slave are merely that. They're world titles, worldly titles. Remember, Paul's goal is not for social and political reform. We can learn a lot from that but rather the organic growth of the gospel, resulting in changed hearts from within, affecting the world without. I just want to note from my Bible commentary on this passage in Ephesians, 
Quote, Paul does not condone the existing system of servitude, but instead provides instructions to believing masters and bondservants regarding their relationship to each other in the Lord and how this should be lived out within the bounds of their social and legal culture. The result, as is often observed, is that this kind of servitude slowly dies out in antiquity through the influence of Christianity. Roman Empire doesn't exist anymore, neither does slavery there. In conclusion, I know there's a lot of it I have missed, and I apologize for that. But we have hopefully been reminded this morning that the gospel changes lives. Christ takes the unlikeliest of people and transforms them into vessels of honor. We have seen it in Philemon, in his service to the church. We've seen it in Paul. Um, He was in in an amazing position in his former life. Um, Like he says, if anyone had reason to boast, it was him. He was brought down to a servant of Christ, ultimately surviving beatings, imprisonment, um, and ultimately his death in service to Christ. And we see it in the restoration of Onesimus, the useless slave. We have seen it all throughout history as the good news of Jesus Christ trickles through empires and countries and raises up dead sinners to life to the praise of his grace. I pray that we at this fellowship can emulate our master, Christ Jesus, more each day in our, in our community, our jobs, and in our own families. If you are a believer in Christ, you have been bought with a price. Let us all live in light of that great truth. I'll close with a verse in Revelation 5, verse 9. Oh, I'm very short. I'm, I apologize. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. What a privilege to be a slave to the king. He has ransomed us from our former master and given us his mark as his slaves. But more than slaves, as sons and daughters of God, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. May we live in light of what he has done for us. And this is what Paul expected of Philemon. This is what Paul expected of Philemon, to live in light of of God's grace in his own life. And this is what we are called to do as well. Thank you.